Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode features coverage of the AIDS 2020 virtual conference held in July 2020. During this podcast, Dr. Chloe Orkin from London, United Kingdom, will discuss important new data presented at the conference on several topics, including the use of current antiretroviral therapy options in pregnancy and in older populations, the metabolic effects of antiretroviral therapy, COVID-19 in people with HIV, investigational HIV treatment strategies, and the latest information on HIV prevention. For more information on Dr. Orkin and for a link to additional online CCO coverage of AIDS 2020 virtual, including slides on the studies discussed in this episode, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Orkin has to say about these new data. Hello, everybody. Uh, It's really great to be here with you all after what was really quite a special and fantastic conference, albeit a virtual conference. I didn't imagine uh, that it could be so well handled, uh, uh, and it really, really was. So it's a real pleasure to share some of the data that were presented there. So I'm going to cover current treatment and metabolic effects of antiretrovirals, some other effects of antiretrovirals, and some investigational HIV treatment and prevention strategies. And then I'd really like to give you a chance uh, to have some time to ask me questions uh, if you have any, and you can enter those in the chat and we can pick those up. So let's start with current treatment. So the advanced study was one of the key studies that was presented at this conference, and I'm sure you'll remember it. Um, this was the very large study, around 1,100 uh, subject study, which was conducted at a single st- uh, site in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it's a multi-center randomized open-label phase three trial uh, for treatment naive individuals. Um, and the important thing about the study is it enrolled uh, almost 100% black and 60% women into this studies. So it was a very unusual cohort to what we normally see in terms of the underrepresentation of people of color, people of color and women. So um, the, the, what was evaluated was Dolutegravir with FTC and TAF, Dolutegravir FTC TDF, and Efavirenz FTC TDF. So we saw the 48-week data uh, last year, and we found that uh, what was found was that there was non-inferiority. They all performed just as well in terms of efficacy. Today, we're looking at the 96-week data. And in terms of efficacy, you can see on the right that, once again, non-inferiority was maintained across the regimens. However, what's become really famous about this study is the findings uh, that have been shown consistently in terms of weight gain and metabolic syndrome. So... Um, Firstly, the first point to make is we're going to be looking at the data through week 96, uh, and we now have full enrollment up to week 96, but we'll also be giving you a a glimpse today in in this presentation of the data out to week 144, so after three years. Uh, And what we can say in summary is is that uh, in terms of weight gain, this was predominantly fat mass rather than lean mass, and that women significantly gain more fat mass than men. But if we look in more detail at this, you can see that at week 96 in women, in terms of mean weight gain from baseline, uh, for women, for Dolutegravir, FTC, and TAF, there was an 8 kilogram weight gain uh, versus the Favarin's 3.2 and Dolutegravir, FTC, TDF of 4.6. So you can see almost double from uh, with the addition of TAF. At week 144, the weight gain continues. 
and it continues at the same alarming rate uh, with a 12 kilogram mean weight gain on the Dolutoga FTC TAF versus 7.4 for the TDF. And you can see their Favrin's group is pretty much the control. For men, the trend is the same. There is significant weight gain relative to Favrin's uh, and also relative to FTC TD, uh, TDF. Um, if we look at the treatment emergent metabolic syndrome at week 96, uh, for all patients, you can see that in terms of this, uh, the uh, cross indicates that there was a statistically significant finding of greater metabolic emergent metabolic syndrome uh, for DGFC and TAF versus Favrin. So it was statistically significant in that category, but not in these specific uh, genders. So that's some important findings. And so it really builds on what we saw at week 48, builds on the incomplete set that we saw at week 96. And we see this glimpse of a not fully, not every participant has reached 144, but we see what we were likely to see uh, going forward into the future. So the next study is looking at big tegavir FTC and TAF in people over the age of 65. Once again, this is an underrepresented group. So what they've done is they've done a pooled analysis, a retrospective review of randomized international trials. Uh, these are all switch studies. Uh, and they are fairly large switch studies. If you look on the right, you can see around 280 participants in each of the studies. However, if you look on the left, you can see the ends at the bottom are the number of people over the age of 65 in these studies. And what you can see, this actually adds up to 115 approximately. So we're talking about 115 people in this analysis. So what we're looking at firstly is efficacy, and then we're going to look at safety as well. So, um, over 65 treatment emergent adverse events through week 48, what you see uh, is that actually there was minimal uh, adverse events, both lab or uh, in terms of other safety events. Uh, mean weight gain uh, for switch to BFTAF was one kilogram. GFR, you would expect a small drop in people over the age of 65, and that's what you saw. Uh, and interestingly, 4% of patients who, who uh, were not on lipid-lowering therapy had to initiate. Now, that's uh, slightly higher than some studies, which tends to be around 1% to 2%. Um, and interestingly, 43% of patients were already on lipid-lowering uh, therapies. And I think one of the take-home points for me about all of this is that, you know, we often say when we look at the lipid abnormalities for TAF is that they are uh, statistically significant, but of minimal clinical significance. However, if you're over 65 and you have multiple other comorbidities, you know, the significance of these uh, lipid changes might become more pronounced, and it is worth considering that. So, um, moving forward, um, in terms of metabolic effects of antiretroviral therapy, um, this is a really interesting study. This was a study uh, looking at um, the BMI changes over time in people with HIV who started treatment. And the cohort that was looked at was from the Kaiser Permanente database, which consists of 138,000 uh, subjects. And it was a comparison of people with HIV versus uninfected controls. So they looked at the time period between 2006 and 2016 in people who had available uh, BMI data, and the uninfected controls were matched one to 10 by age, sex, race, ethnicity, and clinic in year. And they used a mixed modeling approach to assess the change in BMI by HIV status. So if you look on the right, uninfected is in blue, people with HIV in orange, you can see that there's a much steeper incline in terms of weight gain over uh, over a time from, from baseline. Uh, so actually, you, if you do a calculation, um, you can see that it's more than a threefold uh, increase, 
higher rate of, of weight gain in the people living with HIV versus people without HIV. Um, so if we consider this in the different weight categories, normal underweight on the left, overweight being weight uh, BMI greater than 25 in the middle, obese greater than 30, what you see is this pattern continues with people with HIV having more weight gain, a uh, relatively higher rate of weight gain per uh, year based on rather than uh, people without HIV. You can see that this is most marked in the uh, normal or underweight, which is not surprising because we might expect some return to health effect, but this also occurs in the overweight uh, and less so in the obese group. The, the authors note that BMI is an imperfect measure and it doesn't account for muscle mass um, or unmeasured confounders. So the next study I'm going to show you is the OPERA data, and this is a longitudinal prospective cohort analysis. And once again, it was elect electronic health record data from the OPERA cohort, which actually represents 8% of people living with HIV in the US, more than 115,000 individuals across 65 cities, 19 states, including uh, the country of Puerto Rico. So uh, the current analysis was restricted to adults receiving TDF containing three drug treatment um, with, with who are undetectable. So what was actually being looked at, what happens when you switch from TDF to TAF? And the analysis is gonna look firstly at what happens if you switch from TDF to TAF and you keep your other two agents, uh, your other third agent, sorry, and what happens if you switch to TAF and you switch your third agent? So before we look at that, what I'm going to show you is what the anchor third agents were. So you can see that the largest group were on integrase inhibitors, followed by NNRTIs, followed by boosted PIs. The most common integrase inhibitor was Elvitegravir cobicistat boosted. Uh, the commonest NNRTI was Rupivirine. Commonest PI was Darunavir. So that's what, what the cohort were on. So now we're going to look at the weight change with the switch from TDF to TAF while maintaining other antiretrovirals. And we're going to look at it by class of anchor agents. So on the left is integrase inhibitors, middle NNRTIs, and right is BPIs. Now, if you look, you can see there's a point where everything suddenly massively goes up. You can see at nine months, suddenly there's a huge rise between naught and nine months in weight. And it, you can see the person's trucking along um, you know, at a reasonable rate before the, the switch, and suddenly there's a huge increase. Um, and you can see that for the different anchor agents, the, the extent of the increase is different. Um, you can see it's more for integrase inhibitors. And very importantly, after nine months, it levels out. You can see this clearly on the graphs and you can also see it in the table below and it reaches sort of a plateau. Um, so um, let's move to the weight change or switch from TDF to TAF while maintaining other treatments. Now we're gonna look at is it different depending on which integrase inhibitor you happen to be on when you switch from TDF to TAF? So what you see on the right is in the first nine months for relotegravir, you get the smallest increase when you switch um, from TDF to TAF um, and the higher one in terms of integrase inhibitors uh, when you're maintaining them uh, is uh, with alphategravir cobicistaf. Now we're gonna look at what happens when you also switch from, TD, from TDF to TAF and you switch your INSTI. So if you switch um, to Bictegravir on the right, you can see the most pronounced weight gain, 4.47 uh, 
uh, kilograms per year. And then you see in the middle is Dodichegovir at three and Elvitegovir at 2.55. So really what we're saying here is that there is a range of weight gain. The minimum weight gain that you would get in this situation in this analysis is when people switch from TDF to TAP and work Reltegovir, where there was, the figure was 1.8. When you switch uh, to two drugs, when you switch both uh, TDF to TAF plus you switch the, to the integrase inhibitor uh, Bictegravir, um, then you see a, a much higher uh, increase uh, in, in weight. Um, let's uh, move to the next study, which is the Tango study. Uh, and here we're going to be looking in this study, which I'm sure you'll know about, which is when people who are on TAF-based treatments were switched uh, to DTG3C. Um, and here we're going to be, yeah. I apologize for interrupting. Could we go back and would you be able to just explain which was the correct answer to the? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so the correct answer um, was C. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you couldn't all see the poll. Um, so th the correct answer was immediate weight increases that slowed or plateaued after nine months post-switch, regardless of concomitant antiretroviral use. So well done to those of you that got it right. And I'll go back to the Tango study. So this was an open label study, switching people from uh, TAF regimens to DTG3TC. Uh, and we've already seen the primary outcome uh, in terms of 48 week data. We saw that it was non-inferior with no resistance. But here we're gonna be looking at metabolic outcomes by the different subgroups. So what I would say to you in terms of your baseline uh, how you look at this data, I'll remind you that about 70% of people in the study were on Elvitegavir and Kobe cystat So we are talking about a 70% of the study um, who were on a boosted regimen. So this becomes important in terms of how we understand the findings of the study later on. So here they're looking at metabolic parameters, uh, HbA1c, glucose, insulin, uh, HOMA IR, um, week 48 and metabolic syndrome. So what you see overall is that there was a statistically significant difference between D in favor of DTG3TC for adjusted uh, home IR. And for the boosted group, you can see that there was a, a statistically significant difference in mean fasting incident. So moving forward, um, in terms of lipid changes, what we see here, if you look overall, you can see that all of the lipid changes uh, were in favor of DTG3TC, were better in DTG3TC other than HDL. And you can see, if you look at the orange column in the middle, that these changes were driven by the boosted subgroup with patients, which were mainly people that were on Elvitegravir, Cobicistat, and obviously people on PIs. And you can see that this really drove uh, the, the lipid changes. Um, and when you look at um, the odds ratios for HOMA IR greater than two uh, and metabolic syndrome a week 48, what you start to see for the, for the leftmost uh, forest plot is the adjusted OR for HOMA IR was better in people who are on DTG3TC overall and in the boosted group. And there was a numerical sense that it was moving towards that in the unboosted group, but it doesn't cross zero. Um, adjusted OR for metabolic syndrome on the right, uh, you start to see a, a trend towards an improvement for the unboosted group, but neither of them uh, were, were clearly over the line. So that's some interesting findings. Again, we're trying to understand what does all this mean in terms of switching to two drugs? Um, what, uh, what are the parameters in terms of metabolic issues related to TAF? We've seen there's a weight gain issue, but what does it really mean in terms of metabolic factors? And that's what this study aimed to answer. So I'm gonna to move to other effects. 
Um, so the Tapamu uh, cohort was a very large observational uh, surveillance study in Botswana, and I'm sure everybody's heard of it. Basically, uh, it was uh, an analysis of uh, pregnancy outcomes for people on efavirenz, that's what it was designed to do, versus the general population. Uh, and then when Dolitegavir came into the WHO guidelines, they included it as, as to, to collect outcomes there. And then what happened is that they discovered a high NTD and neurotubular defect incidence amongst Botswana women who conceived on DTG. And it's important to mention that these women were not receiving folate replacement. So the initial signal showed that there was a 0.94% increased risk um, versus 0.212 of NTDs. So there was a significant uh, prevalence difference, as you see, of 0.82%. But they continued to analyze, and as they got more pregnancies and the denominator got bigger, the signal got smaller. So by April 2019, the signal had gone from 0.9 to 0.3, but there was still a prevalence difference of 0.2 versus efavirenz, so higher chance of NTDs than efavirenz. So what we're going to look at in this conference is the current analysis which reports the data from Tsupamo through April 2020. So here we're looking at prevalence of NTDs by antiretroviral exposure. So you can see the total number of NTDs for DTG, the denominator is now 3,591. Uh, and you can see denominators for the other groups and the HIV negative people. And this is really important because when you look at, when you look at neurotubular defects or any birth outcomes, you do need to comp compare it to the actual population because you need to be sure that you're actually having an effect that is different uh, from the general population. So we see here in April 2020 uh, that the signal has gone from 0.3 for dolutegravir to 0.19, so it's gone down. However, if we look at the non-dolutegravir and the efavirenz groups, you can still see that there is still a prevalence difference between them. Okay, So it is still not the same as efavirenz or non-dolutegravir uh, regimens in terms of the prevalence of NTDs. There's still a higher prevalence, but it's getting smaller. Uh, and in terms of NTDs per exposures between April 29 and April 2020, there was an additional two NTDs for dolutegravir. So here we're going to look at a retrospective study of COVID-19 in people with HIV at five NYC emergency departments uh, in March and April. And we can see that this was a, a, a quite a, a large number of African-American patients, predominantly male, been on treatment a long time, Nadir CD4 counts of 320, um, and majority of the patients were receiving TAF or TD, TDF combinations. So on the right, we see that um, the CD4 count and lymphocyte counts at presentation versus their pre-COVID levels, their CD4 counts and their percentages were markedly lower, so significantly lower, and the absolute lymphocyte count was two. So that's not, not unexpected. We do know that with COVID, there's an element of immune exhaustion, and certainly we do see that uh, represented here. We can also see the inflammatory markers were elevated uh, in terms of the percentage of people with elevated markers. You can see certain markers were, uh, were universally elevated. So what did they conclude in terms of differences between people who, who died and patients who uh, recovered from COVID-19? So they identified um, that 72 out of the 93 people were hospitalized and about a quarter died and 74% have recovered. So 26% mortality is, pretty, is quite similar to what we would expect in the, in the uninfected population. Those who died did have low Nadir's absolute CD4 counts, 
and final absolute uh, lymphocyte counts than those who recovered. So again, an, an indication potentially of, of additive immune exhaustion. Um, those who died had higher CRPs, IL-6 and IL-8 levels versus those who recovered. The other factors were not statistically significant. So I guess these, find, these particular inflammatory markers were showing a, a, a significance in the HIV infected population. There were no differences in age, sex, BMI, HIV duration, nadir, um, viral suppression before or during COVID. So that, that's interesting. So we're saying that you know, prior disease did not necessarily uh, indicative of worse outcomes. So interesting, a large, a relatively large cohort uh, and giving us some, some much needed answers. So I'm gonna move into investigational HIV treatment prevention strategies and present you uh, this study, which I actually presented uh, we recorded for as an oral abstract for this meeting. And this is looking at Islatrovir, um, previously MK8591 plus Duravarin, so two drugs versus Duravarin 3TC TDF in treatment naive individuals. This was the phase 2B study. And what we're looking at here, why you can look at all the, the bars, you can see that there are different doses of Islatrovir. So the three blue bars represent the three Islatrovir doses. And the orange bar is the triple regimen, Duravarin 3TC TDF. So you'll see the box in the middle. And what we're looking at here is trying to understand the what, who were these people who had viral loads greater than 50 in this study. Let's try and better characterize what happened to the people that didn't end up in the viral load less than 50 category at snapshot. So here we're looking at the protocol defined virological failures at week 48. Um, and the first thing I'll say to you is that at failure, everybody gets a second viral load to be done two weeks later. And on the second viral load, everyone who failed was less than 80 copies. So none of the patients actually met the criteria for resistance testing, which was viral load greater than 400. And there was also no evidence that PDBF was associated with drug pharmacokinetics. So let's try and understand what were the reasons for people actually being detectable at the time of the snapshot. So the first thing to say is the top gray part of the, of the table, it shows you the people that actually qualified as protocol-defined virological failure. Uh, and there were six of them. So there was one in the Duravarin group, so the five in the different dislatrovir doses, one was a non-responder, uh, and the other four uh, were rebounders. So they initially suppressed and then they went above 50, but none of them went above 200. So what about the other people? Uh, so we see um, that the three other people in this latrivir were people who withdrew very early, so they never actually got to the point where they could be considered PDVFs. Um, two of them were lost to follow-up, one was withdrawn, and in the, in the triple regimen, it was a protocol violation. And it's just important to understand, we're trying to understand, you know, how potent these drugs are. It's a two-drug regimen. We do need to understand, you know, what, what were the characteristics of, of these people. So the next thing to say is that um, you may all, I'm sure you are all aware that we are now in the situation where um, there are continually expanding number of drug targets um, at different points of the viral replication cycle. And this is a really good thing. There's a rich pipeline. And many of these pipeline agents are actually uh, injectable. Uh, some of them may be implantable, uh, but importantly, most of these are long acting. So th there's the Gilead capsid inhibitor, formerly known as GS6207. It now has a name that 
was a good sign in terms of its development along its uh, pathway. It's now called Lina Capivir, um, catchy name. Uh, and it's a first in class capsid inhibitor, as I've said. And this study is in a single uh, ascending uh, dose in a phase one study in HIV negative participants. And really what they're trying to show you here is how long does the drug stay in the system uh, above the levels that you would want it to suppress the virus. What you can see here is in the 900 milligram doses, um, both of them, um, you remain above the level that you would want for six months. So it's, an, it's a subcutaneous long-acting formulation and with a very long half-life. So this is very interesting um, and certainly opens things up in terms of uh, possibilities. Now, the, the next question is, what will be the partner for this drug? Because obviously we need more than one drug to work together. So I'm gonna come on to the HPTN-083 study. This is a fascinating, fascinating study in so many levels. Um, it is a PrEP study evaluating the efficacy and safety of long-acting cabotegravir versus oral TDF-FTC for PrEP. And this study, the 083 study, was for MSM and transgender women. There's an 084 study, which is very close to the end of recruitment, and that was for women. So they've done a special study for women, which is nearly fully recruited. So this is an international randomized double-blind uh, phase 2b3 study. So it was aiming to uh, enroll people at very high risk of infection, um, MSMs and transgender women with no contraindications, and it's 4,566 participants. So the targets for the study, they were really trying to make sure they enrolled the right people. They wanted to enroll the people at the highest risk, which was younger people under the age of 30, and they enrolled more than 50% of these. They wanted to make sure they did enroll transgender women, and they enrolled 12%, which is an excellent figure. It's one of the best figures I've ever seen. Uh, and they enrolled more than 50% uh, of black people, people of color. So this is really excellent representation, really to be commended. Um, so the primary endpoint was HIV incident infections and, of course, grade adverse events. So the drugs that were being tested were cabotegravir injectably every two months versus TDF-FTC um, oral tablets. So what happened is they, they, it was double-blinded. So half of them got cabotegravir as an oral lead-in for four weeks. The other half got Truvada. But they had a matched placebo, regardless of which way they went. At week five... Half of the people got cabotegravir um, eight weekly injections. The other half got uh, Truvada orally with a cabotegravir placebo injection and the cabotegravir arm had an oral tablet injection. So it's a very, very meticulous design where the participants were prepared to have a placebo injection, which is really quite an undertaking uh, and really impressive uh, for the participants and the, the design of the study rigorous design. So here we see the incidence rates, uh, HIV incidence, and cabotegravir uh, is in blue, TDF-FTC is in orangey-red. And you can see there was an enormous difference in incidence in terms of HIV. Um, in fact, it was a 66% difference between the two. And as a result of this, the Drug Safety Monitoring Board discontinued the study on the grounds that it was unethical to give something that was not as good, not as, good as the injectable cabotegravir for these very high-risk people. Um, so actually, it showed resounding superiority on every possible statistical parameter you can imagine. Um, and 
one of the other very interesting things before you look at those um, those bar charts, what I would say to you is that they designed the study knowing that sometimes people don't always take their Truvada and when they don't, the outcomes are worse. So they anticipated based on previous trials an adherence rate of about 67%. But in actual fact, the participants who took the Truvada well exceeded that and they were taking it you know, around 75, 80%. So despite excellent adherence, better than adherence than expected, you still saw these findings. So it wasn't just that they weren't taking their treatment, they were taking, you know, really well enough to have a good uh, outcome in terms of Truvada. And I would encourage you to look at the presentation. There's a lot of very rich detail. Um, they look at, in detail, you know, the differences, they look at the failures on both groups, uh, particularly for the cavitegravir arm. And they look to try and understand when they failed. Did they fail at the time of diagnosis? Were they misdiagnoses? Did they fail in the core lead-in? When did they fail? Did they miss their injections? What happened? And I really, uh, the, the presentations on the website, it's really worth watching. Um, so in terms of adverse events and weight change, um, you can see um, on the slide that 2.2% of cavitegravir recipients permanently discontinued CAB for injection-related adverse events. And that's very similar to actually the Flare and Atlas studies. Um, so very low rates of discontinuation. Uh, you can see there was statistically significant differences, particularly in pyrexia, which is something that has been found when people have the injection, they can get a bit of inflammatory pyrexia. And in, for some reason, blood glucose, there was statistical significance. Weight, we go back to weight once again. Um, let's start between weeks zero and 40 for cavitation people gained 1.54 uh, kilogram per year. TDF, there was a weight loss. Now this is important because it's really important to look in people that are uninfected because then we get to see the effect of the drug without the effect of HIV. And you can see the TDF does have a, a weight loss propensity as well as a lipid reducing propensity. So between week 40 and 105, you can see that it became very similar. So what we're saying again uh, for the weight change, it settles down. So overall, there was about a one kilo difference uh, per year between the two groups. And this was statistically significant, even for HIV and uninfected people. So that leaves us with 10 minutes uh, for questions and answers. And I'm now going to attempt to open the box and see whether I can do that. Um, okay. So I can only so far see one question. Uh, and the question is, uh, the dose of TAF is adjusted from 25 milligrams to 10 milligrams in the presence of a booster. Do you see a possible correlation with the Tango results? So um, I'm not sure if the questioner is driving at the fact that um, the COBE cystat uh, boosts the levels and therefore you might may be ending up with a higher level even though you've reduced the dose and this may drive the levels. And I think that um, you certainly see in the unboosted group, which is about 35% uh, of the subjects, um, and a, a trend towards these metabolic abnormalities, without a doubt. And you saw that in the, in, the, in the forest plots, you certainly start to see a trend towards all of these metabolic parameters that you see uh, predominantly in the unboosted group. Uh, and I think that it's, it was because it was such a smaller group, it's harder to show an effect. Um, so undoubtedly, I think the unboosted group was really, really drove the findings. Uh, and personally, I would think that it would be worth uh, doing another study and looking at um, a larger sample size, switching people. But I, but I think the real world data will start to come out because in reality, in, in practice, 
now our commonest regimens are not actually boosted drugs and we could probably get a very good answer by writing up our own cohorts. So Mark Milano has asked, will CAV injections have to be every eight weeks or will be every two months be okay? Every two months will be easier to schedule. Okay, so this is an important point because really when it comes to this whole long-acting treatment situation, we are new at this. In psychiatry, osteoporosis, contraception, um, they know all about how to manage this, but we are learning. So how it worked in the studies is that you had to have your injections every eight weekly, but you had a week latitude. So you had to have it within seven days of the prescribed date. And I think this is an important point. And I think that um, there is the potential to give people a, a small supply of cavitegravir privarine orally if they're going to miss uh, a dose to bridge. But ideally, um, we at this point only know the findings from the clinical trials and everybody was compliant or adherent to the week. In the FLARE study and the ATLAS studies, almost everybody had their treatment within a week. So I think the real world data, again, you know, as the drug becomes licensed, will start to tell us what the forgiveness of this combination is. Another question, um, would you consider changing back to TDF from a TAF-based regimen if the patient gains five kilos? Now, there's an interesting question. So at the moment, we don't know whether what to do if you gain weight. We don't know if, it, if you switch away, it goes away. We don't really understand pathogenesis of the problem. So we don't entirely know whether switching away uh, is helpful. Um, I mean, I have to say anecdotally in my own practice, if somebody, a lot of the time, if you're switching from T, in the UK, we prescribe TDF first line and the WHO does as well. So we would switch to TAF if someone had an indication and we consider indications to be bone problems, or renal problems, otherwise we would give TDF. So in my setting, once someone was on TAF, there'd be a reason for that. Um, so I, I think if TAF is your first line and you have an option to go to the patient to have TDF, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that is certainly a reasonable thing to do. Um, okay, so somebody has asked, can you clarify in the Tsupamo study the NTD rate among DTG compared to the HIV negative? I'm going to go back, but basically um, the Tsupamo I'm going to show it to you, but it was actually very similar to the Favrin's group. So yes. I'm hoping you can. So let's just reduce the box. So if we look at the HIV negative, um, the final signal, as I said, it's exactly the same as uh, Favrin's. So, so Favrin's is performing the same in terms of NTD signals at general population. So there is an increased signal, uh, you know, on DTG. Let's see what else. Um, Someone's asked me to comment on the patient from San Paolo who's reported to be possibly cured from HIV. Okay, so it's really interesting uh, presentation. It was a study from Brazil. There were five people who were randomized to have uh, intensification of their treatment with Maravaroc plus nicotinamide plus dolutegravir. And one of the people um, after a certain amount of time on, on nicotinamide was then put back to their antiretrovirals and then had a had a treatment after for a period of time and then had a treatment interruption and ended up uh, negative uh, on multiple different uh, parameters. So, I mean, what I'd say here is that it's relatively early days. We have had such, you know, hopeful uh, situations. We had the Mississippi baby, um, and we have, you know, this this can there are some unusual uh, findings. 
I would certainly not suggest that people rush out and start taking nicotinamide, which can be bought from a health food shop, but it can be very dangerous in terms of facial flushing. I think that we need to see more data and we need to remember that there were four other people in the study who were not cured. So I think let's watch the space. It's always interesting. Uh, nicotinamide has a sort of HDAC uh, type effect. So it could be a matter of uh, waking up the immune system uh, and kicking it out of the reservoirs. It is interesting, but I think we probably need to, uh, to, to hear more about that. Um, yeah, so somebody else has asked what to do if someone's on integrase inhibitors and TAF. I mean, it's quite clear that um, with, if you look at the, the, the data presented by Paddy Mallon, the opera cohort with Rotegavir, um, switching to TAF, there was the least weight gain of the whole study. And that's likely because people had been on it for a long time and were switched from TDF to TAF. So um, I think we have to, we do need to understand more about the pathogenic mechanism and whether it's different for different drugs. Um, there's an excellent uh, paper in CID, uh, which I was one of the authors with Paul Sachs's lead author in September last year, and it looked at, really teased out the differences between the backbone uh, and the third agent in terms of weight gain. It was a very large meta-analysis of all the Gilead portfolio studies. Um, and it does certainly look, it certainly looks as though the newer, more tolerable drugs seem to be worse in terms of weight gain. So Rupivirine worse than Flavarins, uh, Bictegravir, Dolutegravir worse than, worse than the early integrase inhibitors. Um, but in terms of what to do, we don't know. Uh, anecdotally, I have switched people to NNRTIs and I have switched people uh, to, uh, to 2DR and, and, and removed TAF in some cases. Whether that's a scientific thing to do, whether there's any data to support that, we don't know. When the advanced study first presented their weight data, um, I stood up in the audience and said, um, what have you done? Have you, have you stopped the study for people that are putting on 12 kilos? What have you done with them? And they said, no, there's no indication they have with weight gain, we've continued. So I think until we start to see clinicians intervening and we see what happens, at this point, it's total unknown. Is there a plan to deliver uh, eslatrovir into a long-acting formulation requiring less frequent injections? There is. Um, they are looking at um, sort of uh, next, uh, it, like an implant type uh, implant, and it does look as though preliminary work suggests that it might be able to be an annual implant. And they're looking at developing this both for treatment and prevention. Um, so someone's asked about the HbA1c outcomes in um, Tango. Were there any differences? No, there were not. Um, Someone's asked to provide a shared presentation. The, yes, the slides will be downloadable in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, let's see what else they're saying. Someone's asked um, in Atlas and Flare if participants were close to 100% adherent, what explains the virological failures? Now, I think that's such a good question that although it wasn't really covered at the conference, I'm going to pick up on that, particularly as I've got a particular interest in the Flare study. I think that there were very few failures in Atlas and Flare. We're looking at like one to 1.5% of patients out of a large cohort. So it's very hard to really work out what happened with these people because there's so few of them. Um, but it does look as though it's gonna be a multi-factorial situation, which includes things like the type of virus that did appear to occur more in A1A6 virus 
uh, when you had certain polymorphisms like the L74I at baseline, it did seem to happen uh, in the people that had happened this was potentially might be an association with very high BMI, although most people with very high BMIs did fine. It's not 100% clear. Again, I think, you know, studies such as the customized study, which is the large implementation study rollout in the US will start to answer these questions. So I see that I'm running over. Yes. Um, so I'm going to stop now. Great, thank you. And thank you for your very active engagement. It's been a pleasure to be here, uh, albeit remotely. Thank you very much, Dr. Orkin, and thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full AIDS 2020 virtual conference coverage program on the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. Thank you.